This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. As talk of arming teachers picks up steam, our teachers and a special student guest say, Are you kidding? Plus, we talk to black students about their feelings on the movie Black Panther. They say, yes, it's as big a deal as people say it is. Also, have charter schools hit a wall? Our charter school teachers think, in fact, maybe they have. All that in a special Snow Day edition of Kids These Days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? Teach high school social studies. Elaine Jarden, what do you teach? I teach middle school math. And Maria Kennedy, what do you teach? I teach high school history. So Greg, Maria, Elaine, they're all three educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to topic number one. As we tape this, the national debate over gun control given renewed vigor after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, is not only not going away, but seems to be intensifying. The teachers on our last episode told us just how engaged and Indeed, angry some of their students are about this issue. In recent days, too, we've seen thousands of students marching on the Florida State Capitol, students asking direct, biting questions of politicians, including President Trump, in public forums and listening sessions. And across the country, in places geographically far removed from Florida, students walking out of their own schools, protesting gun violence and demanding change. We have our panel of teachers here, like we always do. You just heard them introduce themselves, and they certainly have much to say about the latest developments, including the heated debate that has sprung up over whether teachers should be armed. We can get into that. But we also intentionally want to add another voice to this conversation, that of a student. So I want to introduce to you Jackson Barton. He's a senior at Free State High School. That's in Lawrence, Kansas, about an hour or so down the road from where we tape in Kansas City. Jackson is the editor of his school newspaper, The Free Press, and he was one of hundreds of students at his school who, in the week before this taping, walked out of classes to protest gun violence and demand more gun control. Jackson Barton, thanks for joining the teachers here at No Wrong Answers. Thank you for having me. So, Jackson, I want to start with you. Um, is it true that teens, and I, I certainly don't expect you to, to, to speak for all teenagers, but is it true that the teens that you know are, are angrier, maybe more frustrated than they've been um, in the in the past regarding divisive political issues, this one's certainly about gun control. Um, I think that's absolutely true. Just kind of seeing the stagnation in Congress and on our executive level in the past few months especially, um, and now just coming around to a serious issue that affects high schoolers directly and seeing that same response. Uh, high schoolers are, are very fed up with that, and they don't want to see such an important issue treated the exact same way. Uh, do you feel unsafe at school? Do you find that you and your friends think about the possibility of, of school shootings happening where you're at? That's that's a tricky question. I definitely do feel safe on a day-to-day basis. Um, I don't feel like there's going to be someone who can come into school and do a school shooting. But there is kind of that fear in the back of your mind that you're constantly thinking about. And 
I, I have heard in other podcasts people refer to this as the uh, mass shooting era or the, the school shooting era. And I, that has been my entire high school career. So I have never really experienced anything different. Uh, the thought of a school shooting has always been in my mind. And I've always thought about uh, where I am and where I need to be to be safe. Yeah. Hey, Jackson, just, just a, a question from your perspective, uh, from a student perspective then. I, I kind of see it almost playing out both in, in two ways. Do students almost see it as like the new norm, almost desensitized mm. to it because it, it has happened so often? Or is it also that kind of that mentality, uh, the, the old teenage mentality, it can't happen here, it can't happen to us, which I'm sure the kids in, Park, in, in Parkland in Florida also had the same thought until it did happen. Um, which, which one do you see it or is it somewhere in between? Is it both? Um, I, I think that thought of it can't happen to us, um, I remember having that and my peers believing that uh, several years ago. That was something that was very, very common. That was kind of something to kind of calm people down. Um, but now I think since it's happened so many times, um, that has kind of turned into frustration um, as to why does this keep happening? People are starting to ask that question instead of just saying, well, this is an isolated incident. Uh, this can't happen to us. It's instead turning into, well, why does this keep happening? Is this going to happen to us? I've seen some reactions from teachers that are like, you know, walking out serves no purpose. Instead, you should, you know, smile at 17 new people or make 17 new friends. How do you react to feedback like that? I, I just think that's it's a little condescending. Um, and I think it's kind of shutting down a debate that should be happening. Um, high schoolers are smart. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of teachers who understand that, but there's a lot of teachers who don't quite understand that either. Um, and I think that having a debate is part of the educational experience. Um, so kind of encouraging that is what teachers should be doing. And I, and I think a lot of educators are not only skeptical, but maybe even a little bit scared of of the, I think, the organizing power that, I mean, things like social media, group me, Twitter, whatever, uh, can have. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of adults, people our age and older, have kind of looked at what's happened in Florida and beyond and been, if not shocked, and then downright maybe a little bit um, skeptical of, of what the, the teenagers are doing. But I mean, this seems, I mean, to you, this is, this is what you've grown up with. This is like your natural environment. I just maybe explain a little bit about, um, how you see organizing through group me and, and are you surprised that it came together so quickly? And is that what kind of organizing looks like now? Um, it, it is a lot of what organizing looks like now. Um, just kind of almost a little bit chaotic at times. Um, but it, it does happen and, and high schoolers have a lot of energy, so they will, they will commit to these things. And this is just a broad general question and I don't know if it's, it's answerable, but I'll, I'll try it that how do you fight the cynicism from staff that says, well, you know, what is a, a walkout? Well, what about students who really aren't just walking out for the cause? They just want to get the heck out of class. You know, they're just being that jerk student. Um, and then maybe the, the, um, your peers who are just cynical about it, it's like, really, yeah, we'll walk out, but what's it really going to do? You know, it's not really going to do anything. How do, how do you fight against that? That's a, that's a good question because I've had similar thoughts like that too. This school year, there was a sit-in at LHS, mm -hmm. um, Lawrence High School, the other high school in our town uh, that made national headlines. It was in response to kind of a anti-transgender remark in a group message. Um, and that student didn't face punishment and uh, students were upset by that. So they organized a massive sit-in. Um, and I just remember thinking like, well, how many of those students are like doing that just to get out of class? Uh, but when I went and talked to those people, I really saw how, how much they cared and how much they thought about this. And when I experienced it here at Free State, I saw that as well. And I really haven't 
kind of struggled with cynicism at this point because of just how successful that walkout was. I haven't encountered a lot of it with teachers. I haven't seen a lot of it with students. And it isn't that big of a fear for me anyway, just because our numbers were so great. Uh, You know, one of the policies that's gotten maybe the most public airing in the last week or so is this idea of arming teachers. Mm. Um, I think I know where our teachers stand, but I would like to hear their response. I mean, we had teachers last week who were adamantly against it. But uh, as a student, what would you think about your teachers at Free State being armed? And and what do your friends think? Um, My friends absolutely hate it. My um, it's it's a it is a um, it kind of makes you consider the dark times we're in when we have to be giving deadly weapons to our educators. Um, For me personally, I can see the possible benefit in it, but I also see um, just how impossible it is. I think, first of all, um, it it won't go through. Uh, Legislators won't like it. But then um, I can see the atmospheric damage it can do to the classroom um, and just kind of the power imbalance that it can create. And that's really scary to me to like actually think about. Um, I I'm not a person who thinks people with concealed carries are maniacs, but um, I I do believe that having a weapon in a space does kind of change the atmosphere for sure. Well, I totally agree with you because there's an inherent power differential in a classroom already, and then when you add a lethal weapon to that mix, that just becomes an even wider gap to try to bridge. And I'm sure you've had teachers that are strong classroom managers and then some that struggle, and my fear is that people would fall back on using that weapon in ways that aren't really students' best interest. Yeah, well, Maria, Greg. Yeah, what just you just a, a thought that occurred to me this morning about that. If we're having trouble as a society right now with students or or people of color getting shot and abused by police officers who are trained, mm-hmm. what's going to happen when we arm the teachers? Uh, it's just I, I don't know. There, we've all had those teachers. We've worked with teachers, or we've had teachers that, when we were students that were borderline. You didn't know, um, you know, how crazy they really were, and 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 just. The thought of having them a gun, of them being armed, that's no. Yeah. I, so I teach, Jackson, I teach um, 100% of my students identify as students of color. And so I'm the white body in the room. And I, Elaine, your point about power imbalance and just inherently how there is already an imbalance of power in the classroom um, between teacher and student, I agree with. And I think it gets exacerbated um, when there are lines of difference around race. So... I, like the teachers from last week's podcast, am adamantly and vehemently opposed to teachers being armed. Um, and I, and I, for me, I worry about, I don't know, I, I worry about the message that it sends, um, that a white body feels a need to have a gun to maintain order and security. Uh, I just like fundamentally have a, an issue with that. I think Greg, to your point about like police shootings and mass sh- um, police shootings and just like violence, that that troubles me. Uh, there was actually there's an article, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the the author, uh, but it's floating around on social media. It's essentially, to that same point, Greg, that you were talking about, and the name of the article was, "You do realize that arming white teachers means that black kids are going to get shot at school." I also think Jackson, to your point about like man, like the times we live in, how awful is it that I read that article and I'm like, you know, that. That that's not wrong. Uh, well, I think this leads to a question I wanted to get. I mean, especially with Maria and Greg, you teach at schools that are uh, mostly, if not all, 100% students of color. Um, Elaine, you've taught in schools that, um, like that. I mean, 
Has this conversation around school shootings and, and gun control, has that been different because of the environments, you, uh, the schools you work in, Greg and Maria? Yeah, I think there's, um, there has been a difference, almost a disconnect, and really for maybe three reasons. One is because we just had a bunch of snow days. The second reason is, uh, the, one that scares, and the one that scares me is this, that they've kind of become desensitized to it just because mm-hmm. it, it has mm-hmm. happened so often. Mm-hmm. It's like another school shooting. Eh. Um, and then the third reason, the one that I find fascinating is this attitude among my students, maybe Maria, you could speak to this too, that it's a white thing, um, that it's not going to happen here because we're mostly Hispanic um, and it, it just it doesn't happen, which is if you're following the profile of the shooters, that's that's mainly true. And that it just this this attitude that eh, it is just it's a white problem. What I find really interesting and salient is that even with the school days that we did have available to us, it wasn't something that I thought to brought up or to bring up. And what I take from that, I'm not proud of that. What I take from that is I too am becoming desensitized to this. I too am almost, yeah, I too am losing hope and see this as another link in in this like cyclical chain of events that we seem to be unable to stop uh, due to entrenched entrenched interests like the NRA for example i see some hope from the parkland shooting um the young men and women in the high school give me a lot of inspiration in terms of their response to it um but we also aren't getting i think as far as we need to get um and i worry that adults aren't listening to them the way that we should. In uh, kind of wrapping up this conversation, uh, some teachers on last week's podcast um, said their their students were energized, their students were angry, but at the same time, they also expressed um, and maybe some reservations or anxieties that you know, in a week or two, their students would forget about it or would mm-hmm. move on or the next big thing would happen. And so, I wonder, um, as a teenager, as a high school senior this year, um, what do you say to that? And 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 do you think that you know, once the next big story happens or if, you know, God forbid there is another tragedy that occurs in a week or two that, you know, you'll just move on. Um, I, I just, I listen to the radio every morning on my way to school. Um, and I get a lot of headlines thrown at me, a lot of big stories. Um, so it is very, again, yeah, it's very difficult to keep, um, even the biggest stories in the front of your mind. High schoolers have a lot to do on a daily basis as well. There's a lot of anxiety related to school, um, a lot of activities to do. And not everyone is meant to be an activist either. Um, and I, I think that's important to note as well is that um, people who choose to um, not not put a lot of energy into this as well, there are reasons for that too. Um, and you are not, you're not a terrible person if that is you. Um, but for the people who do want to put their energy into this and um, do maybe could burn out, um, I just think we all have to understand that this is a, um, a long battle. This is not something, especially with our current Congress, this is something that is not going to change quickly. This is going to be a fight that goes on uh, for decades. Well, Jackson Barton, senior at uh, Free State High School in Kansas, uh, thank you for coming in and, and talking with us. And thank you very much for having me. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN.
There's a viral video you may have seen in recent weeks. It shows the reaction of students at Atlanta's Ron Clark Academy, most of them young students of color, moments after school officials tell them they're all going to see the movie Black Panther. goes on like that for a while. Indeed, since even before its release, Black Panther has not been just a cinematic phenomenon, but a cultural one as well. Across the U.S., including here in the Kansas City area, schools have been taking their students on field trips to see the movie. GoFundMe pages and other fundraising efforts have been set up to pay for groups of students to go see the film. Many of these fund drives focused on getting young students of color to see Black Panther. Surely, due in part to all that, the movie has had the biggest box office open of any movie ever in the Marvel comic universe. It has generated more than $400 million in worldwide ticket sales and counting. Beyond that, critics and audiences alike say Black Panther is an important movie, not only for the story it tells, but simply for what it is. A Hollywood blockbuster directed by a black man, starring a nearly all-black cast with complex roles for black men and women. A plot that embraces notions of black pride and tells a fully realized story of black struggle and triumph that many say has been too long in the making. Many of you educators in our audience work with students of color and have likely heard their opinions about the movie in recent days. Well, here at No Wrong Answers, we wanted to hear that student voice firsthand. How big a deal is Black Panther to black students in particular? What impact has the movie had on them and What does it mean beyond just its Rotten Tomatoes rating? I recently sat down with three black high school students here in Kansas City to talk to them about Black Panther. All the students whose voices you'll hear participate in a radio program called Generation Rap, which airs on KPRS, known around Kansas City as Hot 103 Jams. And KPRS was nice enough to allow No Wrong Answers to record this interview in their studios. Introduce yourselves. Hello, I am Tyree Bayon. Hello, I am Zykeria Clay. What is good? My name is Paul Salary. You all are students in the Kansas City metro area. Well, just tell me your gut-level reactions to the movie. You all have seen Black Panther, so what do you think of it? Black. <laughs> That's like, you're just like, whoa. It's, it's, but in a good way, like, oh my God, so many black people. But you love it for that. Yeah, I, I really like it, especially the scenery and just the whole, like, I mean, I like, I really wanted to put myself into that movie. I, like, I want to live there. That was really dope. You want to live in Wakanda. Yeah, it was really nice. I liked it. It was very heartwarming to see the movie and the production and to know that it's already breaking records and it's only been out for a weekend. I really loved uh, everything about it. Try to explain, if it's the case, try to explain how watching this movie for you was different from, from other movies you've watched. It was different in the way that I don't think I've ever seen that many black people. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a movie kind of about African heritage or, like, background and it not be, like, a comedy? Um, I could actually put myself into that movie, like, with the scenery because I actually, like, I actually wanted, like, I wanted to go there. Like, I was like, wow, I can actually relate. I, I picked it up from a couple of you earlier, but have you guys thought about what it would be like to live or go to Wakanda? <laughs> I would probably die from shock. I love, I love to travel. I've been to so many places already for my age, and I would love to go to Africa specifically, research more about myself, and go to the parts where my ancestry is from directly. But yeah, I would love if Wakanda was a real place, if to go there, even just a- Africa in general. I would had love you to had go. you had those thoughts before seeing this movie? 
Yes, I had wanted to go to Africa and like kind of want to go to where I was specifically from. Yeah. Would you? Yeah. What do you think about the? I mean, the the idea of of um of protecting Wakanda by putting up this facade, right? Of that was kind of <laughs> like I was like, wait, Hunger Games? Like that was kind of <laughs> that was really yeah, that was that was different. I kind of liked that, but I was kind of scared that something was gonna happen. The Phillies was gonna be going. I don't know. That that was that. Was, I really like that part because I was like, they are smart. Because Eric, because the Brit, the was he from the UK? Yeah, he was from the UK. He was like, I didn't know y'all had all this technology right, he like, here. I didn't know y'all was this advanced. So I thought that was smart on their part. Um, I think they were kind of just basically trying to make sure they was good, and because they had seen what had happened in the world and how other if other places mix with other places, it just becomes bad. So I really like that aspect of the movie. It wasn't smart. <laughs> it wasn't. I'm not trying to be, but when you think about it, it's the equivalent to build a wall because they're trying to keep everybody else in and not let anybody else in. That's why they, he said, he used to, he had that moment when he clashed with his daddy. <laughs> <laughs> he he said they were wrong for that. Okay. They no, no, were, no, no, that's no, the reason no, why no, Killmonger no. came in the first place. because no, he, he was trying to keep all the, all the bad people away. Like you were saying like, what's his name? Kill, Killmonger. Killmonger. Monger. <laughs> I'm not going to Paul, I'm sorry. Paul, Paul is rolling his eyes. Anyways, him. So he was saying, like, I understand that part with like kind of being having that relationship with the outside world, but then keeping what they have safe. Cause you know, you can only take so much in at one time. So and so, not, yeah, so what what about that that yeah. that's the battle, right? It's like they I mean, they, if y'all want to visit Wakanda, you, you they gotta drop the barrier. So y'all not going to Wakanda if they keep the barrier. First of all, Wakanda <laughs> separates themselves from black people in general. I'm not trying to I'm not okay. trying to be political. I'm just saying like that's what they said. This is what they're saying. I mean, so I see what you're saying so because that actually for kind America of is for our own good. If by that so, logic, that's yeah, what I can see what you're saying because that is kind of like building a wall. That's why because he's basically because building a wall is like, but we don't want these people coming in because they're doing this and that. Now, considering that that's kind of, the story isn't the same, but it is similar with the building the wall. I feel like we kind of felt more of a that's what they need to do is because we black and they exactly black. that's what it is. Okay, yeah, so when they had like that, what's the blue stuff called? The Vibranium. Yeah, yeah, the vibranium. They have so much of it, and they know, like, if it gets to the outside world, there's so much, like, harm, so much danger, wars and stuff that could happen. So they're just trying to keep everybody safe, and from they're just trying to not have just cause that in general. That's why they didn't want the ships to go out. So, yeah, well, it's kind of But it's, I mean, I think it's kind of cool to have that type of, uh, like, really, I think, deep political Maybe. argument yeah. in a yeah. movie. Right. I mean, I, I right. think you could come down on either side of what you guys are talking about. Right. That maybe they should be isolationist and and protect their resources and protect themselves, or maybe they should be open to the world. Yeah. And and try to you know bring their technology and their advancements to to black people of the world. And I yeah. think you I think it'd be re- I mean, do you think it'd be reasonable to like come down on either side of that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that. Let's see. Um. Uh, I think that at the ending of the movie was a very good balance between not just letting everybody come in and not right. us shielding our resources from the actual good people. So I think uh, they... Okay, so last right. question. So has has seeing this movie changed how you see yourselves or see your world? It didn't change me. But I do acknowledge it changed other people because uh, 
I do think it changed black people now. Because I, when I, this is a little history. Uh, we, me and my uncles, like I grew up on superheroes. So we all, we went when Avengers came out. I couldn't tell. Two thousand. <laughs> yeah, it was. You. Oh, I'm sorry, man. It, I just be fangirling. But when Avengers came out in 2012, we all went to go see it. So that's like six grown men, a few little kids, <laughs> and my daddy and the wives are all in the theater. Just that's right, Hulk. <laughs> and like I think I, I look around now that I look back, I look around and it's not that popular amongst black people. And I knew black people didn't haven't really seen many black like superheroes because the, the they haven't seen many superhero movies because the film theater was it was packed yesterday, and they got up. When the credit, when all the stars came up and I came on, I was like, clearly, what do you, y'all don't know what you, I, I, try, I was trying to like, brother, sister, sit down, please. And I, I try to plead. There's going to be, there's going to be more yeah. scenes during yeah, the Yeah, I was like, yeah. more <laughs> scenes. And then they, they, they all got up and they filed out. And I was like, dude, they, it was on the, it was at the plaza, so I can understand. Oh, yeah. So I was like, you guys don't know what you're missing. And it opened out and black people and I, I hear like, now I'm going to just watch marathons and stuff and everything. I'm going to watch all the movies, eat. Even just the terrible Wolverine movies, that was like they're gonna watch every movie. They want to know all about superheroes. So this movie, I said, I do say this movie opened the door for that. So now it's more acceptable to just come out and say, yeah, I, I, I like, but I like Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's okay for me. I mean, it's more okay. It, yeah. it starts a di- that dialogue at least. Well, Tyree, Zykeria, Paul, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much thank for having, having us. us. Well, on to our next topic. New research suggests charter schools, at least in some places, are hitting a wall. Ed Week reports that since 2013, the charter school growth rate in the U.S. overall has declined sharply. According to the National Alliance for Charter Schools, since hitting a peak growth rate of 9.2 percent in the 2013-14 school year, that rate has since plummeted to 2.3 percent last school year. And again, that's growth rate, so the nation is still adding charter schools just at a much reduced clip. Zooming into the Bay Area of California, one of the bastions of the charter school movement, last year more charter schools actually closed than open, and that had never happened In full disclosure, I used to work at a charter school in the Bay Area. It is incidentally still open. At the same time, critics say charter schools are exacerbating public education's rising problems of racial resegregation. An Associated Press analysis published late last year determined that charter schools are strikingly overrepresented among the schools determined to be the most racially isolated in America. Of the nearly 6,500 charter schools in the U.S., the AP analysis found more than 1,000 of them had minority student enrollment of 99%. The rub, the AP concludes, is that schools with that high a rate of racial segregation typically underperform on state tests, and students at those schools are likely to be less proficient in reading and math. The report goes on to say that these results are at odds with charter schools' frequently stated mission of offering students, often in urban areas, with better alternatives than neighborhood public schools. It should be noted we have two current charter school teachers Uh, On the panel this week, and a teacher who has taught in both charters and traditional public schools. So this is a good group of teachers to take on this topic. That's why we wanted to talk about it. Um, So for my teachers here today, from your vantage, is it fair to say charter schools have hit a wall? Why or why not? There probably is no more room for expansion. But I think there's room for improvement of what currently exists or almost like a one-in-one-out policy. Um, But I don't know that there are 
enough students, just looking at numbers of students who are attending charters, those who return to the district, that kind of thing, at least in the Kansas City metro, I do think we're not going to see an increase in the net number of schools. Yeah, is, there a, is there a lesson there for charter schools nationally? Yeah, I mean, for me, I would say that just because there's growth, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I, I teach at a charter school. I've also taught in public schools in the past, um, but I, I've taught in charter schools for the past four years. I don't think, I, I believe that if a school is not serving kids, uh, and by serving them, I mean like taking care of their socio-emotional well-being as well as showing academic achievement and growth, that school should close. I don't actually care if it's a charter or a public school, traditional public school. I also feel like in order for a student to participate in a charter school, that means that their parent has to be involved in some way, right? Like they have to know to seek out the enrollment application. They have to know that there are options outside of the traditional public school. And I think that's also a limiting factor. I think that there are some parents who just for whatever reason, are not able to or choose not to participate in that process. And that's another reason why we won't see much more increase in those who are interested in charter schools. Yeah, Greg. I think there's an academic wall also that's being hit where even the best charter schools are, some of them are are outperforming the district schools, but the vast majority aren't. And that's the whole purpose of having a charter Mm -hmm. school is that the public schools aren't servicing the kids. They're not giving them the academics that they need. Um, and if charter schools aren't doing it either, then really what's the, that they lose they lose their point. What's what's their point of existence then? Yeah. So, so academically, there's if they're not reaching their goal, you know, shouldn't exist. Uh, both you, Maria and Greg work at schools that are, as I've already noted in this program, um, almost 100 percent students of color. Um, it, charter schools have been criticized often for kind of contributing to this resegregation of, of schools. Um, and a lot of, uh, as the, the AP analysis that I mentioned earlier, a lot of charter schools are these racially isolated schools where 99% of, of students are of one demographic group. Do you think charter schools are contributing to this problem or are they just um, meeting the needs within a system that already has this problem? I think that's that's kind of confusing the cause for uh, just a symptom. Whereas I think right. the, segregation, the, the segregation has already happened. Um, it's just popped up because of the way the, way the system is. Um, you would still see the segregation in public schools whether there weren't, weren't any charter schools anyway. Um, because of residential be, segregation. Because of, resi- of, the way, right. of the way that system's set up, yeah. So, so I think that segregation, uh, in some ways, it does make it worse because then what you have is instead of like, you know, instead of African-American um, – you know, Hispanics in, in the inner city schools and in inner city public school. What you have is now like segregated charter schools where you have, hey, here's the Hispanic school. Hey, here's the African-American school. And so in some ways it's become even more separated out. Do charter schools have a responsibility to try to uh, take on that, I mean, what's admittedly a bigger problem uh, with with segregation? We've seen some schools do that. Uh, the one that comes to my mind is Citizens of the World. Um, here in Kansas City. Here yeah. in Kansas City. So for those who don't know, Citizens of the World Charter School also has schools in California. Mm-hmm. I believe Los Angeles. Don't quote me on it. Um, and their mission or their idea is is global integration. So actually they really strongly prefer to have diverse classrooms and, di- um, and students come from diverse neighborhoods. And they use a lot of project-based learning. It's, it's, a, cool, it's a cool model. Um, so I think like that's one example we see of a charter school trying to fight that. But I, to your question, Kyle, about uh, do charter schools have a responsibility to try to tackle that? 
I, I, I don't know. I think to say, to like put resegregation on charter schools overlooks the history of white flight to the suburbs that you all alluded to earlier um, with neighborhoods themselves being segregated. Um, but I think that charter schools have a mission or have a responsibility to serve the children of the city uh, and to find a need and try to fill that need. So my school, for example, I think whether rightly or wrongly, and I'm totally open to debate this, has a we do an open lottery, but we have a system where students, we prioritize students within the open lottery who are come from certain zip codes. And those zip codes are within the city. They are the five lowest in terms of socioeconomic status. Um, and, and often that also coincides with uh, those neighborhoods being racially, full of racial minorities as well. And we're very upfront about that and, and very unapologetic about the reasons why, because we know that those neighborhoods are underserved and have failing schools in them. And in order to counteract that historic and systemic injustice, that's a choice that we've made. Um, Again, like totally open and happy to debate that. But I think what the leaders at the school have made very clear is that they do not feel comfortable giving a seat within the school that I work at that is high-performing to a white student who has a lot of other cultural and social capital um, as opposed to giving it to a student who needs, um, who has fewer opportunities and like could, needs that opportunity. Uh, Lane, you've worked in multiple charter school settings in different states, I should say. So, um, how do you see this question? I mean, is it, do, do, do charter schools have a responsibility to try to tackle this bigger social problem or are they contributing to it? I think charter schools need to have a little bit more accountability to upholding their charters. Mm -hmm. I think if the Charter has been written the way that I, I have not looked at the charter of your school, but I'm very we get the mailers. I'm very familiar with the prioritized Because you codes. live within the district. I yeah. live within the district. <laughs> yeah. And I actually really appreciate that because it makes it very clear, like, this is the need that we are trying to meet. And I think it's easy to hold account yourself accountable to that. Mm-hmm. In a charter school that I worked at in California, they actually ended up having to rewrite their charter because uh, the racial balance in the school was no longer aligned with what was mandated in the charter. And the district had realize that during an audit. And so they actually had to change their entire lottery process because of that. So in my mind, I mean, you can't force anyone to do anything, but I think that all charter schools need to be really evaluating, are we upholding our charter or are we just kind of modeling our school to be this ideal that we personally want it to be? Well, we'll leave it there. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits, a special edition of Kids These Days. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, it's a little different this time. Um, Our teachers, as they have noted, have been iced out of class pretty much every day over the past week. Not every day, but you've barely seen your kids over the past Mm -hmm, week. Let's put it that Um, Between teacher conferences, the President's Day holiday, and then uh, most Kansas City schools had three straight days of cancellations. Uh, It may be hard for you to know what the kids are into, so we're modifying it a bit. Let's call this the um, best snow day ever edition of Kids These Days. Give me your best snow day memory as either a student or educator that you've had. Greg, best snow day ever. Well, 
I think one of the problems with having a snow day or multiple snow days as a teacher has always been, man, if I just knew we were going to have multiple snow days, I'd get to the airport as fast as possible, catch a flight to the someplace warm and just spend the time there. Five or six years ago, it actually happened <laughs> where me and some friends, we went down to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Um, and I took some time off from school. I had a sub and everything, had to do sub plans. I was checking up and we got snow days. So I'm there in New Orleans, enjoying my time, and I am not missing school. <laughs> Thank you, weather. <laughs> best snow day ever. Mardi Gras, best snow day ever. And yeah, snow days are kind of like a purgatory. You just got like, you just like sit and wait. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Maria, best snow day ever. Uh, my, I don't know if it's the best one, but it's the one I'm vibing on right now. So earlier this week, I, we knew school had been called off the night before. So we knew that we did not have to go in. Uh, my wife and I woke up late. We stayed in our pajamas and we just did a puzzle together and drank hot tea and listened to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It was that absolute bliss. Yeah. Uh, snow days are always better when you know the night before. Mm. Correct. <laughs> yeah. And yep. Elaine, best snow day ever. I honestly can't remember <gasps> any snow days, but I did ask the kids what they did on their snow days. And out of the 24 kids in my homeroom, 16 of them played Fortnite. Are your kids into Fortnite? What is, well, no. Oh, well, maybe. I don't so They know that game. I'm not the cool one. It's a game. A video game. Jackson. And, yeah? Do you know not Fortnite? Okay. So you <laughs> probably can explain it better than I can. But essentially... You're trying to survive in this, is it fair to say zombie apocalypse? I mean, there are zombies like raining from the sky. I, it's kind of tough to explain, but anyway, it's like a survival type challenge and you know, they play against each other. But the internet went out in their oh, no. neighborhoods for a little bit of time, which caused because a whole of bunch ice? of stress. Yeah. Yes, but yep, three so straight they were days of Fortnite for them. Right, right. <laughs> And, and I should say, snow days are probably a little bit different with a one-year-old at home. Yeah, I'm just a professional <laughs> snack maker, really. <laughs> uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Maria Kennedy, Elaine Jarden. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodep, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs> <laughs>